Amen. All right, if you'd open your Bibles with me, please turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start reading here in verse 13 in just a moment. As you turn in your Bibles or your phones, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful time it has been in your presence to lift you up, to adore you, to know that the presence of the Holy Spirit is here with us, to lift up and glorify Jesus Christ. May you continue, Father, to be at work in the hearts and minds of your people in ways that only you can. God, we pray for insights and wisdom and grace this morning as we open your word. We pray all these things in your wonderful and magnificent name, we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 here in just a moment. <clears throat> but we are right in the middle of this passage of Scripture about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. And we're going to start digging into the armor of God this morning. So, how do Christians engage in spiritual warfare? What do we mean by spiritual warfare? Many of us, when we begin to talk about those kinds of things, I know we've got interesting images in our head, or if it's a new concept or a weird phrase to us, we might even have some strange images in the backs of our minds about what we mean by spiritual warfare. But what Paul does in this passage of Scripture, guys, is he provides a pretty straightforward and clear teaching on what we mean by spiritual warfare, specifically why is this an important topic for every one of us? And how do we engage? What do we do? What are the tools? What's the armor? What is that like and why are they important? So as we begin to work our way through some of this, let's be reminded of some of the things that we talked about last week so that we understand our context as clearly as we can. First of all, we are only strong in God's strength. That's how Paul begins this passage. Be strong in the strength of the Lord. We can't do this kind of thing with the tools that we have at our disposal, with our intelligence, with our money, with our education, with our networking, with our cleverness. We can't do this. So we have to learn how to be strong in the Lord first and foremost. We need to keep before our minds the truth that our only true enemy is the unseen enemy. So Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This flesh and blood, or the flesh and blood around us, or the flesh and blood in, in human institutions that frustrate us or we believe are demonically motivated, that is not our primary enemy. Our primary enemy are the spiritual forces. As Paul puts it, we wrestle against the spiritual forces in high places and authorities and rulers and powers who are at work against the will of God, and these are the forces that are at work trying to destroy human lives. So we have to remember that's who our enemy is. We remember this morning that this is for all of us. This is not just for uh, those who have a special gifting in some sort of unique way, although I believe that exists. But this belongs to absolutely all of us, not just a few. Every Christian is a warrior. And then Paul doesn't want any of us to be lost. He says, we want all of you to stand firm, to know how to stand against the schemes of the enemy, and to stand within the evil day, and having done everything, we remain standing by the power of God. 
And guys, let me add this one last thought. It's a daily thing. It's a daily thing, especially when we understand what the armor of God is. This is something we do daily or should be doing daily. So Paul gives us this roadmap for how to prepare. And it's the armor of God in this passage of Scripture. So let's make sure we see this thought as we begin. Putting on the armor of God, guys, is about saturating ourselves in the character and the power of Christ. Everything that's listed here is about the character of Christ, the power of Christ, dynamic relationship and intimacy with Christ. That's what this is about. Putting on the character of Christ so that we can stand against the enemy. Sometimes we get a little hung up on the armor part, the belt and the breastplate and the helmet and the sword and what all they mean and what all of they do. And it does remind us of Rome, the Roman soldier in their day, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But what Paul probably has in mind primarily are these Old Testament images that we're going to talk about where God himself uh, dresses himself in armor and goes to battle, and now God gives us his armor for battle. So the armor is a useful image for us, but the point of this passage is what we pick up. Does that make sense? So we're interested in what Paul tells us we need to pick up. So today, we put on truth and righteousness. So let's read in Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read verses 13 and 14 this morning. The passage goes like this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand Firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's right, two verses. So, what we're going to do this morning. It is absolutely true that the image of the Roman soldier would have been easily recognizable for every original reader of this letter. Those who are in Ephesus, this is a city that's occupied by the Roman Empire. Those who had been Jews like Paul or who had come from Jerusalem or Judea, that is also occupied by Roman soldiers in the Roman Empire. So that would have been an easy image for them to understand. So as Paul goes through the armor, they would have understand that they would have understood what all of those pieces looked like, and they would have understood what Paul is doing. He's giving you this image of putting on the armor of God, and this is what it looked like. They did the policing. They were the occupiers of the day. And every one of these things that Paul lists in this passage is going to correspond with a part of the Roman, uh, the Roman uniform. But Paul is probably drawing from a deeper well than just the Roman soldiers who marched through the streets on their patrols. He's actually grabbing some images from the Old Testament. And then it's not just here in Ephesians that Paul uses that imagery to talk about our battle in Christ. There are several other passages in the New Testament where he talks about putting on the armor of God, but this is the most robust. This is the clearest place. Some of these Old Testament passages that Paul has in the back of his mind as he begins to talk about the armor of God. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5 says this, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah chapter 11, especially the first chunk of verses, is this powerful passage of Scripture that tells us the Messiah is coming, 
And here's what the Spirit of the Lord is going to be like upon the Messiah. So this is what His life is going to be like. This is how the power of the Spirit is going to be at work inside of the Messiah's life. Righteousness will be the belt of His waist and faithfulness the belt of His loins. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Messiah. And then another passage of Scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 59. Excuse me, verse 17. And it goes like this. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. A very provocative image of God preparing Himself for battle. Now, you go to Isaiah chapter 59, you read the context, and what's happening there is the people of God have rebelled against Him, and He is now going to lead them into exile. So, God is actually preparing Himself for battle against His own rebellious people. I mean, it's a powerful passage of Scripture. Now, both of these are about how God prepares Himself. One is the work of the Spirit of the Lord, and the other is actually God warring against the rebellious people who are about to go into exile. But the point is this. This is how God prepares Himself for battle. Now, this is fascinating. I think this is interesting and important for us. The church now plays the role of divine warrior, so God gives us His armor for battle. And remember, again, it's not our strength or our cleverness, but we now play this role. And what we are being given is the armor of God, the armor that He uses to go to battle. He now gives to us in this reality, this world of spiritual warfare as we begin to learn what this means and how we prepare ourselves. So again, guys, we're putting on the character and the power of God so that we can stand against our enemy. And this is something that is asked of every single one of us. So the very first thing that Paul lists, and to me it is powerful that this is the first thing that's important to the Apostle Paul. I want you to wrap around yourself the belt of truth. Truth. What a gigantic concept. What a big idea. If someone just were to simply ask you, what is truth? That's one of those questions where you feel like, well, I know what it is. I I think I feel like how important it is. But if I were to actually write down on a piece of paper, what is truth? It might actually be very difficult to come up with a clean and concise answer. So here's how we're going to begin to talk about truth. And this is a huge topic in Scripture, but I want to keep us focused this morning on a couple of really important points. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. I believe right now I have enough gas in my car to get myself home. Is that belief true? Well, we're going to see when I go out of my car and put my key in my ignition and turn it over. And if it's true, that my belief will correspond with reality, and that's what makes it true. Does God exist? Is Jesus Christ His Son? Is the Holy Spirit with us now? Well, we can do a little bit of work, and we can realize that this is true because it corresponds with reality, with how things really are, with how they work, with what God is doing. So in talking about truth, it's not just an abstract philosophical concept 
For the follower of Jesus Christ, the notion of truth here, the very first thing we're supposed to put on is profoundly connected to who God is. So look at it like this, guys. God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. God created literally all things, and He is still involved in the movement and the activity of all things. So He is the creator and sustainer of all things. So everything that we would call reality, everything that we would label as truth, has as its source God. Okay? Does that make sense? Everything that is reality, everything that is actually true, has as its source God. So everything that we bump up against that turns out to be true, everything that we learn that is actually true is something that comes from the will and the purpose and the character and the power of God. So guys, Christians are lovers of truth. Because, guys, the truth that we learn in Christ, the truth that we learn in the Word of God, the truth that we learn as we walk through this life with Jesus Christ, this is a way of seeing God more clearly, who He is, what He does, how He acts, what power is like. Truth is a way of seeing God more clearly and of building authentic relationship with Him. So this is radically important for every single one of us. This doesn't have to be your personal disposition, but just the truth of who Jesus is. First thing that Paul says, I want you to wrap this around you. This is what's going to hold everything up is truth in Jesus Christ. Here are some of the ways in which Scripture talks about how important this concept is. Jesus is God's truth among us. Jesus is God's truth. The Gospel of John is actually deeply concerned about this notion. The, the, the author, the disciple John, loves to use this idea in different kinds of ways. Right at the very beginning as he's introducing Jesus to us in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, part of what he says is, when we saw Jesus, we beheld the full glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we saw Jesus, we saw the fullness of the truth of God. Later on in John's, uh, John's gospel, the disciples are actually beginning to stumble over the idea that Jesus is on his way to the cross and he's going to die and he's going to leave them for a little while and come back. And the disciples are having a hard time figuring out what that means. And part of the comfort that Jesus gives the disciples is in John chapter 14, verse 16. And it goes like this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we tell a false religion from the true one? How do we tell false worldviews from the one true worldview? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in that religion? Who is Jesus in that worldview? Jesus says, here it is, right at its very core, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father through me, except through me. So listen, guys, every worldview, every political ideology, every religion has a doctrine of salvation, every single one of them. They may or may not call it a doctrine of salvation, but a doctrine of salvation has essentially two parts to it, what's wrong and how do we fix it. 
So if that worldview has a doctrine of salvation that says this is wrong, but we don't need Jesus to fix it, it's a false idea. It's a false religion. It's a false ideology. Because Jesus says, I am the truth. So we need to know him more and more. Jesus is God's truth. Now this is beautiful. The Holy Spirit, who is the presence of God with us right now this morning, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. In John chapters 14 and 16, as Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he's going to go away, but he's going to give us the Holy Spirit, the comforter. He's not going to leave us as orphans, but the Spirit of God is going to be with us from now forever, he says. He keeps calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. Here's one of those moments, John 16, verse 13. Jesus says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but of whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. This is how we gauge whether or not, if someone claims to be speaking on behalf of the Lord, this is how we gauge whether or not it is biblical or it is true. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth and will always guide us to the things of Jesus Christ. It will never contradict the Word of God. It will never contradict the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because He is the Spirit of truth. I love that. I love that. And here's this incredible passage of Scripture as Paul is writing right at the very end of his life, and he's writing to this young pastor by the name of Timothy who actually takes over the church in the city of Ephesus. And he tells him this, the church is intended to uphold the truth. This is part of our job. This is why it is so important for you and me in our own personal lives, in our small groups, in our families, in our large gatherings, when we get together, you and I are paying close attention to the truth and we're not allowing culture to tell us what we ought to believe. We need to be standing in the truth of Jesus Christ. And so Paul puts it like this with Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He's speaking of us, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. I love that image. We are a pillar, a buttress. Both of these things are architectural features that don't technically hold things up, but what we do is we transfer the load and the weight of the truth of God to the foundation. That's architecturally what a pillar does. It transfers the load or the weight to the foundation, and our foundation is Jesus Christ, and the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. We can't let go of it, guys. We can't let go of it. Why is the concept of truth so important for the Christian right now? Well, guys, the dominant view of truth in our culture right now is by and large the view of Pontius Pilate. That sarcastic, empty question that he asks Jesus, what is truth? Right? Truth has fallen on hard times in our culture right now. We want to determine our own truth from beginning to end, from alpha to omega, about absolutely everything. We believe more and more that my experience determines everything that is true. My experience is unassailable because my experience is nothing but what is true. My feelings about a given situation, my feelings about an idea, my feelings about Jesus Christ that's what determines truth as opposed to reality itself determining truth. And of course, that's just going to differ 
from one person to the next. And guys, if any of us disconnect truth from God and try to ground it in ourselves, this becomes a recipe for personal disaster and never-ending interpersonal conflict. That's important. If we remove truth from God and who He is, it becomes personal turmoil. My feelings change. My experiences change, and they never really line up with reality if that's where I am basing truth. And it becomes a never-ending source of personal conflict, a never-ending source of personal conflict. It is, as one Christian apologist put it, planting your feet firmly in midair. That's what it's like. Disconnecting truth from God and placing it inside of my own heart one way or another. That's why this is important for us. Why is this spiritual warfare? Why does Paul begin with truth talking about spiritual warfare? Because our enemy is the father of lies. Our enemy is the father of lies of lies. So Paul says, I need you, Christian, if you're going to stand against some of the most powerful lies that you're going to hear, the most powerful lies are going to sweep through your social circles, the most powerful lies are going to sweep through your culture, the most powerful lies that are going to tempt you away from who God is, the first thing I need you to do is to gird yourself with the truth of Jesus Christ. Lies and falsehood separate us from God and from His will. This is the goal of our enemy. If He can get us to believe a lie, He will begin to separate us from God and His will in our lives and who He really is. And guys, let me tell you this. He is really, really good at it. He's been practicing on billions upon billions upon billions of human beings for a very long time, and he is really good at it. Lies about who you are, that inner turmoil about who I am or how valuable I am before God, what my identity is. Guys, one of the most profound and destructive lies at work inside of our culture right now is an absolute confusion of identity who I am, who I was physically built to be, psychologically, spiritually built to be. And the the enemy is very good at tearing us to shred from our inside out by attacking these kinds of things. You are a child of God. Every one of you is of absolute and infinite value to the God who created you, loves you, died for you, and rose again from the grave so that you might have abundant life now and eternal life forever. This is who we are, and the enemy wants to tear all of that to shreds. Lies about who God is, what His character is like. Lies about who gets to play the role of God. Increasingly in our American culture, that is a profound lie that we don't need the actual God. We just need the right bureaucrats and politicians, and they can play the role of God, and everything will be fine. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Nothing goes just fine when that happens. When human institutions play the role of God, it's an absolute bloody disaster. Who's God? You are God alone, and there is none like you. It's something that the people of the Word of God have been saying for thousands and thousands 
of years. Lies about what this life is for and how it should be best lived. Lies about what is right and wrong and good and evil and moral and immoral. This passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 gets quoted often. It often gets quoted in these really awful contexts, <laughs> but it's a powerful passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How many of you are absolutely astounded at how many people in our culture can actually physically watch destruction, violence, chaos, and death and call it peace? How many of you are amazed by that? How does that happen? The lies of the enemy. Guys, remember our enemy are not human beings who do that. Our enemy is the one who is twisting souls and minds to exchange good for evil and evil for good, darkness for light and light for darkness. He's very good at it, so it's stunning, right, when it happens and how profoundly it can happen. The lies of the enemy that distort justice itself. Our culture is crying out for justice, but we need the right God of justice. Lies that distort justice, leading to chaos and the persecution of those who stick to the will of God. Listen a little bit later on in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 59, verses 14 and 15. This is a powerful passage. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. Why? For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And then get this. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. If you decide, I'm going to walk in the ways of God instead of the ways of evil, I'm going to leave the path of evil and begin to walk the path of God, what happens to you on social media? What happens to you in culture? Isaiah says, when this happens and you walk the way of God, you make yourself a target. But you know what? That's okay. Right? Christ says He has overcome the world. So, guys, truth, love truth, seek it, pray for it, find it in the Word of God, find it amongst the people of God, find it in your time in God's Word, in your time in prayer, in all that you do, guys, seek after truth. Spend time with the Word of God, with God's presence, with God's people, and pay attention to how all of this is at work revealing the truth of Jesus Christ to us. And I'll tell you what, when we do this over time, the lies of the enemy on every level, the lies about who I am, the lies that tear me apart on the inside, to lies about how culture and society and life ought to move, those lies become more obvious to us the more we love truth. And the destruction of our enemy's lies become clear to us, and truth becomes attractive. We want it. This is the part of the power, this is part of the force of how our enemy uses lies and falsehoods. He makes it look so good. 
the more we spend time with the truth of God, we begin there, we're actually able to become attracted to the things of God. So we begin by telling, tying this belt of truth around our waist. And then he says, I want you then to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. I'm going to use a word, especially in this part of the sermon, that is, um, you know, we don't use it very often, and it's not a word that we, we tend to be attracted to all the time, but the word is holiness. Holiness. What do we talk about when we talk about righteousness biblically? Righteousness is a life of right standing before God, our moral judge. It is integrity on the deepest levels of the human soul. Integrity on the deepest levels of our character and of our behavior. Now, this gets intensely personal. Truth is a big concept. Truth is an important concept. It's where we begin, and we want to be drawn to that. But the moment we begin to talk about righteousness, this begins to cut to the very center of who we are and what we do. So, guys, God is perfect. He is perfectly holy and righteous, and sin cannot stand in the presence of God. So, God requires people who are righteous and who are holy. So, Jesus says things like this, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's a profound combination of thoughts. We will be blessed in the kingdom of God, the way God puts things together. If we hunger and thirst, there's something inside of us that simply cannot be fixed or satisfied until it is filled with this. And what is this? It's righteousness. Then when we eat it, when we drink it, when we consume it, we will be satisfied. So this kind of personal holiness is important to the believer we value it. It's something we know that is necessary for our relationship with Jesus Christ. But we also recognize this. I cannot make myself holy enough to meet that standard. So God came in the person of Jesus Christ. And through His life, death, and resurrection, and my faith placed in Him, He gives me His righteousness so that I can stand as a child of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, God made Christ, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's two pieces of this. Because of Jesus Christ, and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, He now gives us His righteousness, so we stand in right relationship with God. But I am still a broken human being lost in sin. I am still struggling and wrestling with my sin. So now I hunger and thirst for it. And the Spirit of God begins to work His work inside of me. Biblically, we call it sanctification. And that righteousness now begins to make its way toward the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So why is righteousness a critical piece now of spiritual warfare? If I told you we were going to do a seminar on spiritual warfare, some of you might think, well, he's going to give us the special Latin incantation that drives demons out of sound systems. If I knew that Latin incantation, I would do it right now. Every Sunday morning, we would stand back there and we would do it. What Paul talks about 
is the character of Christ. So why is righteousness such a critical part of our spiritual warfare? Why? Because our enemy tempts us to sin in order to separate from Christ both now and for eternity. He tempts us to sin. We have truth and we have lies. We have righteousness and we have sin. And this is what our enemy does. So guys, this notion of holiness and the belief that holiness is beautiful is actually armor against the schemes of our enemy. It protects us against the temptation, the schemes of our enemy to separate us from life in Christ. Sin, guys, is acting on the belief that our enemy's way of life is better than God's. Sin is acting on the belief that our enemy's way of life is better than God's. Sin is choosing to follow a path that was actually created for my own destruction. This is how we have to see sin. It is choosing to follow a path that was created for my own destruction rather than following the path that was designed for our freedom and for our eternal joy. Remember this word schemes that Paul uses earlier on in this passage. It's this word that can be used in a military context to speak of military strategy against, an in, against the enemy. So our enemy is scheming against us. So Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Holiness is protection against the work of the enemy. Uh, an old Puritan minister by the name of Thomas Brooks, I love the way that he put this, speaking of how sin pulls us and, and tempts us, how, how, how the enemy's temptation pulls people away from Christ or separates them from Christ or keeps them from walking to Christ. He says this, when a thousand are destroyed by the world's frowns, ten thousand are destroyed by the world's smiles. The world sings to us and sinks us. It kisses us and betrays us like Judas. It tells us this is going to be great. It tells us this is going to be good. It tells us this is the way of life, and it's the betrayer's kiss. It's a song of destruction. The world smiles at us. It says, come on in, the water is fine. <laughs> and it's a boiling pot of bloody stew. <laughs> this is how sin entices us. Now, when Paul writes about temptation and sin and righteousness, when he writes about this to the Romans, the Roman church, he uses this really stark imagery of slavery to talk about how our behaviors follow our beliefs. And he says, we are either slaves to righteousness or we are slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 16 puts it like this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You can present yourself to the way of the world, and you just become a slave to that. Or you can present yourself to the way of Christ. You become slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Sin always presents itself as a certain kind of freedom, freedom from what I was raised to be told to do, freedom from what church told me to do when I was young, freedom from social conviction, convention, freedom to be myself, to express myself. It's always presented as freedom and not as death. 
And so if that is the case, if some of the greatest freedoms of this world, the greatest moral systems of this world mean I am free to be myself, free to express myself, then the greatest injustices in this world are anyone who keep me from expressing who I want to be. If that's the greatest good in this world, then that's the greatest evil in this world, is you cannot tell me who I am going to be or what I am going to do. That is slavery. That is death. Or even I get to create my own identity. And then justice means only one thing. Everyone else not only allows me to be who I choose to be, but accepts and affirms who I choose to be. But guys, down that path, I strive to something, find something that will never be found and achieve a standard that never really made sense in the first place. It becomes a never-ending cycle of frustration and anger at others. Because you cannot find that goal, because that goal doesn't exist... You become angry at other people. You become angry at yourself, and it's a never-ending downward spiral. Righteousness, however, frees me and teaches me. Righteousness frees me and teaches me. It frees me from the slavery of sin, Paul says. And it teaches me that sin is a slave driver. And it frees me to become who God designed me to be. This is the beauty of holiness. This is the power of righteousness. We think, guys, of things like addictions and the addictions that arise because of temptation to sin, addictions like addictions to pornography or addictions that become more and more common in our culture, addictions to cannabis and legalized drugs, addiction to notoriety, addiction to fame, addiction to whatever the case may be. None of those things are freedom. Every one of those things is like a meat hook in your heart. And it will constantly pull you back to itself. Not in freedom, but grabbing hold of the most sensitive part of who you are and it pulls and it pulls and it pulls. Righteousness is freedom. Holiness, on the other hand, is the wide open, beautiful country of God's will and of God's power. And as Christ told us, we need to hunger for it and thirst for it. We need to long for it. We need to seek it and receive what God wants to give us. And the righteousness that we find in Jesus Christ can free us from every chain. I love the way Pastor Tim Keller puts it. Jesus is the only master who, if you get him, will satisfy you, and if you fail him, will forgive you. The slave master of sin doesn't do any of that. This is Jesus. This is His holiness. Paul goes on to say in that passage in Romans chapter 6, we read verse 16, verses 17 and 18 say this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. We now have become obedient from the heart. This is the work of the kingdom of God, this inner transformation. 
that it doesn't turn into coercion, but it turns into a desire that I have. Holiness and righteousness in Christ, guys, is a desire. So Paul says this is how we stand. This is how we combat the lies and the sin that so easily, as the writer of Hebrews says, entangles us and causes us to move off of the path that God gave us or to stumble along this path or draw us away entirely or keep us from Christ in the first place. And Paul says, I want you all to stand. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. So he says, I want you to put on the armor of God. The truth of Jesus Christ matters, and it leads us into life instead of death. And the righteousness of God protects us and leads us into the presence and the power, the transforming presence and power of God. Let's pray.